You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I've kind of boxed myself in here for the top of the show. Last week, I said I would talk about the elections this week because we recorded the intro to last week's show the day before the elections. We didn't know what would happen or what had happened. And so I think I changed the subject and I talked about Halloween and how we should give parents alcohol, beat them shots on our porches on Halloween. So There's something in it for the grownups. And I said I'd talk about the elections this week, so I'm kind of stuck talking about this thing that we're all sick of hearing about. And it's so depressing, particularly if you're a lefty or a liberal. Some of my right-wing batshit friends are, of course, dancing. But, you know, if you're a lefty or liberal, it's kind of sad. You have to look for those silver linings. We had one of those silver linings here in Washington State where through a ballot initiative, uh, the people did what our elected Democratic representatives here in Washington State don't have the courage to do and closed the fucking gun show loophole. So that happened here in Berkeley. They passed a one cents per ounce soda tax, despite the millions the beverage industry poured into opposing that, including complaining and right wingers going on the radio to complain that that soda tax was regressive. They don't like regressive taxes, except when they do. They love regressive taxes. They want to cut tax rates for the rich. They want to always hike sales taxes. They love regressive taxes, except when it might hurt a stock they own in PepsiCo. Four different states, all red states, raised the minimum wage. That was good. The personhood bullshit amendment failed in Colorado again. An anti-choice effort that would criminalize uh, abortion but also some forms of birth control and that failed again. They keep trying it. That goddamn personhood amendment has failed in Mississippi, and they tried it in Colorado a second time and it failed again. So everywhere you saw Democrats being handed their teeth – and their hats and their walking papers, you also saw the same electorates backing policies that really are democratic policies, Democrat Party policies. So it's not all bleak. We have their hearts, liberals and progressives do, if not always their votes. Let's field some better candidates. Let's get some more Elizabeth Warrens out there and fewer Mark Udalls. Let's win this thing in two years. And I want to thank everybody who voted, everyone who did vote, as a gift to me for my 50th birthday. I heard from a lot of you on Twitter, heard from a lot of you via email saying that you not only got yourself to the polls but dragged a friend or two to the polls. One woman said that she had somebody couch surfing in her house who was registered to vote but wasn't going to and she made staying in her house conditional upon that person going to the polls with her and voting and I appreciate that. Uh, I just wish – there had been enough of us to stem the tide, but of course there wasn't. We were fighting strong headwinds, midterm elections, second term of a president whose approval ratings are kind of in the shitter right now. A Democratic Party that seems to be entirely composed, with the exception of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who's an independent, not a Democrat, entirely composed of what I like to call scrotes, sort of weak and vulnerable, shaky, nervous things. Not pussies, remember, as you've learned on this show Pussies are strong. They chew up semen and spit out humans. It's scrotums that are the weak and vulnerable thing. You just give them a tap and the guy's on the ground. So we should use scrotes instead of pussies. Don't be such a scrote. Don't be such a – what are you, a scrote? No, I'm not a scrote. But a lot of the Democrats seem to be 
of the scrote variety. And we need more pussies out there like Elizabeth Warren and more pussies like Bernie Sanders and more pussies like Alan Grayson and more pussies like Al Franken and fewer scrotes, fewer Harry Reeds, fewer scrotes. Anyway, let's not belabor the issue. We have two years to fight back. Remember, it was just two years ago that the Republicans thought it was all over for them and there were big stories in the covers of every magazine about the end of the Republican Party and da-da-da. And now those same stories are being rerun, just swapping out Republican for Democrat. Don't succumb to the bitter, bitter, crazy dystopian hype. Buckle down. We're going to come back in 2016. We're going to keep the White House. We're going to take back the Senate. They seem to have a lock on the House for a while. But we're going to take back the Senate and we're going to win. And there are a lot more silver linings out there than the ones I mentioned. Legalized pot in Washington, D.C. and in Oregon. Hinkenlooper, the Democratic governor, held on to his seat in Colorado, which had otherwise been a bloodbath for a lot of Dems. So the silver linings are out there. We will come back. We will win. We've already won the culture wars. Now we just have to win the electoral ones. And now your calls. Hello, Dan. I am a mid-40s male. In the Midwest, I have just been told uh, by my 12-year-old daughter that her mom has told her that the reason that her mom and I divorced is that I uh, cheated on her. While that is true, it does not tell the whole story. Uh, To complicate the issue, the woman who I cheated on her mom with is her stepmom. I was in a very bad marriage for a long period of time. I was in a relationship that I got into way too early. My wife at the time, I thought I needed. She provided me emotional support, but she was very, very cold and frigid. She was responsible. She kept me in line, but was not what I needed in the long run. I had tried to get out of the relationship multiple times and was guilted into staying into the relationship. I was a weak person. After we had my daughter, I fell in love with her. I wanted to be a good dad, but I was sexually incompatible with her mom. Her mom told me that she was no longer interested in sex that she didn't want anything to do with sex. And for years, I stayed in this relationship and was guilted into believing that the fact that I still wanted sex was a bad thing. Eventually, I succumbed to my desires and I cheated on her. The person I was with as I got older was somebody who I fell in love with. My wife at the time found out and broke up with me. How do you explain something like sexual compatibility problems that are beyond a 12 year old's understanding to a 12 year old who used to love you and be very close to you, but now thinks that you are just a jerk because they don't understand how adult relationships work. I love my daughter. We were very close. She's in my world, but she now has trouble with me for the 50% of the time that I have her, we have a very equal relationship. How do I convince her that I'm not a monster? 
and that she should not hate her now stepmother. I am in a relationship where I'm now happy. I don't know how to communicate to a 12-year-old that I'm not a horrible person when a 12-year-old has a hard time understanding a lot of the complexities of adult relationships, things like sexual compatibility, and things that could be complicated. I was having a conversation uh, earlier this week with someone who does a lot of marital counseling and couples counseling uh, around infidelity, around affairs, around sexual incompatibility. And one of the things that she and I – and she's going to be a guest on the show soon. I'm not going to give away her name. She's a big get and we're excited to have her. Uh, One of the things we ended up discussing was the unfairness of the fact that the person who had the affair is always the bad guy when a a relationship ended. Uh, And – after years of doing couples counseling in the wake of affairs, it wasn't always the case that the person who had the affair was always the bad guy. But in a really sex-negative culture where you can – where people go to see couples counselors and couples counselors treat the person who would like to have sex as if they're the problem to be solved in a sexless marriage. If you can just get them both to stop having sex or wanting sex, you could have a beautiful relationship. It was her opinion that sometimes people had affairs under duress and they were perfectly understandable – uh, and that they weren't the bad guy, that the person who had cut them off or married them under false pretenses or married someone that they weren't sexually attracted to and couldn't fake it anymore and couldn't deal with it anymore or had stopped being interested in sex uh, because of whatever reason of their own and couldn't allow their partner to stay with them and be their partner and be their co-parent and and love them and regard that as a kind of loyalty and free them sexually to get their needs met elsewhere and then just turned around and treated them like they were some sort of fucking monster when after five or 10 or 15 or 20 years without sex, they found a sex partner and then got caught doing this thing that their spouse didn't want to do with them anyway with somebody else and were the bad guy. It's hard to explain that sometimes the person who has the affair isn't the monster to adults. It's hard to explain it to people who have no investment in the relationship that came apart. It's insanely hard to explain it to a child who is the product of that relationship and who and whose life was turned upside down by the divorce that came in the wake of the affair that was discovered. You can't go to that kid and say, oh, yeah, well, it's complicated and sometimes the bad guy label either doesn't apply to either partners or has been misapplied to the person who after 10 or 15 or 20 years of sexlessness or five years went out and did this thing with somebody else. So my advice to you is to not try to explain it to your 12-year-old. My advice to you is you say, how do I convince her that I'm not a monster? You just not be a monster. You say to her, it was complicated. Our marriage was complicated. Our marriage was unhappy. The affair was the catalyst that really prompted us to divorce, but it's not really the reason we divorced. And I don't think you should hold it against your stepmother. And I don't think you should see me as a monster. But I understand your anger. I understand why you would be angry. And I'm sorry that your mother – no, actually, don't say I'm sorry that your mother. Don't play that game. Don't like pit her against – try to turn her against her mother. Use passive language. Just say, I'm really sorry that you are in this position where you have this info that you probably didn't need to have and is difficult for you to understand at your age. And now let's just get on with it. Let's get on with our lives. And if you need to be angry at me right now, go ahead and be angry at me right now. But things are more complicated. Adult relationships are more complicated than you can possibly understand at age 12. And what would you like for dinner? And just set it aside. And – She'll get it. 
if mom is working at her constantly to make sure she's always angry at you and her stepmother and you guys are being the reasonable ones, the adults in the room, the ones who are not trying to work her, it may take a year or two for it to get through, for her to break through. It may take a year or two for her to work through her anger. It may take a year or two to see that she is being manipulated, but she'll get there. Just don't push it. Don't rush it. Sorry you're in this position. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old gay guy from Pennsylvania, and I came out a little over a year ago. So I'm fairly new to the romance that can actually be reciprocated. So there's this guy that works at a food shop that I frequently visit, and he's the cutest guy I've ever seen. And my gaydar is just not working for him either way. Uh, We've done some quick chatting, but I still can't tell if he is or isn't gay. My friend says to just ask, but I feel like that'd be too direct. And if he were straight, he might stupidly take offense to it. I know this is a very tame question, but how do you ask a guy out when you don't know whether he's gay or not, specifically in a non-sexual or gay setting? There are actually two things you don't know about this guy, whether or not he's gay and whether or not he's into you. Just because if he was gay, that doesn't automatically mean he's into you. Also, you say it's some sort of food environment, like he's a barista or a waiter or a a cook somewhere where people in that position interact with customers. And sometimes customers, wishful thinking, dickful thinking, will misinterpret that kind of service industry, polite, engaged, charming, please tip me for, I'd really like to fuck you. And it's not always the case that someone in that position really wants to fuck you even though they're being really nice to you. Although sometimes they do want to fuck you, which is what makes it really confusing and awkward. And so here's what you do. You continue to chat with him. You continue to chat with him. If he has any sense, he'll realize that you're flirting back if indeed he's flirting. And if he has any sense, he'll know that because of the sort of social dynamics and expectations and conventions of that relationship, that it's kind of on him to do the asking out. Because if you're a good person, you're not the kind of person who's going to ask out a barista because you figure that since she's being or he's being polite and charming that they must want to fuck you. It really is baristas of the world. It really is on you if you've been chatty, flirty with a customer and you're thinking, oh, I'm chattier and flirtier with this guy than anybody else because I'm really into him. I wish he would ask me out. He seems so decent and nice. Well, the, the decent and nice thing is what's preventing that guy from asking you out because he doesn't want to make you feel uncomfortable, awkward at work. It's on you, barista to make the first move in that situation. So he'll make the first move, possibly, but if not, we can risk it. You can just say, hey, I'm gay. Always lead with that. When you're curious about whether somebody else is gay, just throw your gayness on the table. I'm gay. I was wondering if, and then you'd have to say, are you gay? You can just say, I'm wondering if, and a little gesture toward him, he'll know what you mean, and he'll say yes or no. And then you'll know the gay thing. Then you'll have to ask the into you thing. And once you've established that he's gay, then you say, there's not a lot of gay people in this town, if that's true. This will not work in Manhattan. But if you're in some small college town or in some shitty place, there's not a lot of other gay people in this town. You want to hang out sometime? And then you're just throwing it out as like comrades, friends. We have this in common. Let's hang out. And he will understand what that means broadly, more broadly, that there's a possibility there. And he can take you up on it or not take you up on it. Hi, Dan. I'm a married woman in her late 30s, very happily married, um, have a child. And earlier this year, uh, my husband and I decided, after discussing it, in fact, for many years, uh, to open up our relationship a little bit. 
and have a threesome. And so we did. Uh, we hooked up a couple of times with a woman, and it was great. It was really, really great. Everybody had fun. It was really hot. It's been good for our sex life. Uh, it was all good. Uh, except that the woman um, who we have been hooking up with is a, is a friend of ours, which I think uh, really works for me. I trust her a lot. I've known her a long time. However, she is married, and uh, her husband does not know. He is uh, less of a friend of ours, but someone that we do see, and they have a really unhappy marriage, and she has uh, had affairs before, and is hooking up with other people periodically as a way to try to stay in her marriage uh, because she has children, youngish children, and also because financially she has been unable to figure out how to leave. And at various times she's said to me that, in fact, she would leave if she could afford that, but the finances are complicated. So my husband and I are just sort of wondering what your take is on this. How immoral is it? <laughs> uh, we're thinking about doing it again. She would like to, although she has at times expressed to me a, a little bit of guilt about the, the lying. And we just don't know how to feel about it. And I know there are other women out there, and we are, in fact, pursuing that, too. But we're just interested on your take. We listened to your call, and I turned to the tech savvy at Risk Youth, assembled at my feet as they always are, like, children in a preschool when the teacher reads a story and the sense of the Senate here among the Texas at risk youth when I said, what do you guys think was we're not that moral. I guess that means they would all fuck this lady. You know, you, you want to do and say the right thing. Generally, you you don't want to aid and abet somebody in harming someone else. But as I've always said on the show to people in unhappy marriages where they're unfulfilled but they cannot get out for whatever reason and they also cannot be honest about getting their needs met elsewhere for whatever reason, to do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. So on the one hand, you know, everyone sort of the easy answer is this is a terrible thing you're doing, um, you know, participating in the cuckolding of this man against his will in a non-erotic sense, um, facilitating this affair and that harms him psychically perhaps – uh, yeah, and he'll certainly be harmed and, and hurt and wounded if he should find out. So, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's wrong. On the other hand, if – and this is where I sometimes come down when you have to assess these things case by case. She's in this unhappy marriage. She's doing this so she can stay married. There are reasons that she can't get out or doesn't want to end the marriage. He's in an unhappy marriage. There are probably similar reasons why he doesn't want to end it and he doesn't want to get out. And so he is – not necessarily harmed by this affair, but if this affair is what allows her to stay married to him and stay sane and he wishes to stay married too, even with the marriage's flaws, he benefits from this affair. He would be wounded if he found out about it. If it was discovered, he would be hurt. But so long as he doesn't know about it, if indeed he wants the marriage to continue for these other reasons, despite its bedrock, unfulfilling, unhappy nature, the affair benefits him, like I said. So you weigh those things and you come to an honest – you try to set aside your own interest, your own lust, your own desire, your own convenience and you weigh those things and then you make a call. You should also throw under the scales though when you're weighing those two things, this added little drop. If it came out, would it be awful for you guys too? How well do you know this guy? Is there potential for this to blow back 
at the both of you where it's not just these unknown people had an affair with my wife, but these people who are integrated in my life in this way had an affair with my wife. And it's not just my wife now that I'm going to divorce and retaliate against, but you guys too. Could this, if it came out, put a lot of shit on your plate? Something to think about. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm 25. I've been with my boyfriend now for two years, and we have been exploring the lifestyle of swinging for um, almost the past year. I think we started in January. We've really had a blast. Uh, we've met a lot of great people. We've full swapped. We've soft swapped. We've, you know, kind of done the whole the range. I would prefer to really get to know the couples first and kind of think of it as having a couple friends that are also our fuck buddies. The problem that we've been running into, and this has happened a couple times now, where I will really connect with the guy, but the girl in this other couple is just really not feeling it for my boyfriend. And it it sucks for me because, you know, playing with the guys is great, but sometimes, you know, if they're not interested in playing separately, then it just isn't working out. My boyfriend, he's, he can be socially awkward. I just, I, I just don't know how to help him get better and help him connect with the other girls a little bit better. Um, I've tried to bring it up and he... Understandably, I think his ego is hurt and he gets a defensive, but then his behavior doesn't change. So I just, I just, I just don't know what to do. And um, I would really like to keep doing this, but I just don't know if it's working. Um, so any advice that you could give me on how to help him kind of connect with the girls better? I don't know. I just need some help, Dan. I don't know if I can help you. I don't know if I have the power to turn this socially awkward uh, Sow's ear into some sort of suave silk purse. Uh, If he has, you know, an off-putting affect, if he is socially awkward in a way that makes women feel uncomfortable and that's screwing up your ability to get with those women's male partners, that may be an unsolvable problem, particularly if he's just defensive about that. I would ask you, uh, setting aside his issues and these interactions with other women, how did he get you? What was it about him that you found attractive? And maybe, you know, the tack you could take is go to him and say, these qualities, this approach, the way you attracted me, you need to play that card. You need to hit that. Because something he does works. There you are. He got you. Other men want you too. You are desirable. And he got you. How did he get you? What did he do? What works? You know that he has some moves. You know that he can do what works because there you are. So I would go to him and rather than criticizing him and saying, stop being socially awkward, stop doing X, Y, and Z, to go to him and perhaps frame it in a more positive way, start doing LM and N instead of X, Y, and Z because LM and N is awesome because here I am. LM and N worked on me. Emphasize that and those and stop doing that other stuff that you sometimes do because it's not working and you can do what works. I believe in you. Your final option and it's something you should consider is making playing with you contingent upon playing with him by just saying we're a couple. We only play together. I would hate for some woman to have to have sex with him under duress 
that should never happen. But sometimes a couple swinging couple or a couple just having three ways, sometimes somebody will just take it for the team because they want everyone to be happy and they'll have sex with someone they could take or leave. Never have sex with someone that you can't stand or makes you want to jump out a window. But sometimes people will be intimate with somebody because they want to, they want everybody to have fun. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing. So that's also something that you can do. When you meet a couple and they're interested only in you, you can say, I'm sorry, we only play together. And if they walk away, they walk away. And you move on until you find a couple that either is into both of you and maybe that couple's in the room and you just have to look a little harder. Or you find a couple who are into you and okay with him. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old female in North Carolina. I'm calling about your last love test about um, the woman that has HPV and pees in her partner's mouth. You were talking about the vaccines people can get. And um, I'm currently going back to school and there's a lot of talk about, you know, safe sex and protecting yourself and all of that, especially because I'm at an all-girls college. And... I've been hearing that the vaccines don't work, and some of the people at the college have been saying that as well, that the vaccines are only good for six months after you get your full cycle, and then you have to start over. So, I mean, is that true? Have you heard anything like that? Joining me by phone to help field this one, Dr. Leah Torres. She's an OBGYN who specializes in reproductive health. She practices in Utah. You should follow her on Twitter where she fights the good fight for reproductive freedom and health. She's at Leah N. Torres, T-O-R-R-E-S, on Twitter. Hey, Dr. Torres, thanks for jumping on the phone. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, This woman who has heard through the bullshit vine that the HPV (laughs) vaccine wears off after six months, do you want to set her straight? Yeah, so... You know, it's been my experience that information in high school and college tends to get passed along, uh, much like information might be passed in the game of telephone. And so I think that there's just been some misunderstanding. And I think what she is getting the six months from is actually the schedule of the vaccination. So it's a series of three shots. You have your first shot, and then two months after that, you have another shot, and then The last shot is six months after your first shot. So first shot, two months, and then six months. And then you're Um, done. that's the schedule. And you don't need to have the whole sequence over and over again every six months for the rest of your life. Correct. And it's super duper effective and you should have it definitely if you don't have it already. You were saying that, you know, this could be a game of telephone, that she may have – you know, heard somebody erroneously repeating information about the six-month thing that they misunderstood. But when it comes to the HPV vaccine, there are active disinformation campaigns out there about it. A lot of people on the religious right hate this vaccine. They opposed its development. They opposed its release. And you have people like Michelle Bachman who went on TV and said it causes mental retardation. This isn't just – potentially, I don't think this isn't just you know an accidental game of telephone gotten out of hand. This is – but this is possibly active disinformation that's been disseminated about this vaccine. That is active misinformation. And it's really sad because this vaccine is a vaccination against cancer. Um, that's, that's what it is. There have been fears about telling your children, we're going to vaccinate you against this sexually transmitted virus. And, and that's going to make them almost give them permission to start having sex earlier. And, None of that is true. And actually, research has shown that 
there's no effect on when people start having sex, whether or not they have the HPV vaccine. So all of that is false, and it really doesn't even make sense. If you take your son or daughter, which you should, to go get vaccinated against HPV, you're going to tell them this is a vaccine against cancer. Now, I think it's a good idea. Now, when you, most doctors recommend that uh, people have this vaccine before they're sexually active, that this should be, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old girls should be vaccinated. Terry and I, we had our son vaccinated because boys should be vaccinated against HPV as well uh, to, protect, yes. to, to protect themselves, also protect their female partners, protect their male partners, whoever they are. The vaccine is effective for all genders. But is it effective for this woman if she's a young adult and she's already sexually active? Should she get vaccinated as well? Absolutely. There is no harm in getting vaccinated. And the most common vaccine, Gardasil, is uh, helpful against four of the most common types of HPV virus. Now, there are over 100 types, but two of these types it protects against can cause genital warts. The other two it protects against can cause cervical cancer, anal cancer, different uh, mucosal cancers. And so, while you may already be sexually active, you may not have these strains of HPV. You may not have been exposed. And so doing everything you can to protect yourself against these strains is the thing to do. And even if you've been diagnosed with HPV, get the vaccine because, again, there's more than one type. And you definitely want to have as much protection as you possibly can. Dr. Leah Torres, follow her on Twitter at Leah N. Torres, L-E-H-N-T-O-R-R-E-S. And she's awesome. You can also go to her blog, leahtorres.com, and read her stuff. Thanks for jumping on the phone today, Dr. Torres. So appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you. Hey, Dan. This is a 32-year-old bisexual in a marriage. So I've never been with a man. And now that that's a possibility, I have no idea what to do. So one of my friends, who's a straight guy, uh, introduced me to Grinder, and I haven't done anything with it yet because, A, I think I might be too naive to know how to do it safely, and B, I don't know if it is safe. So your advice on how to get into the sack with guys but not string them along to think that, A, I want a commitment because I have a wonderful relationship, and B, how to get over being shy and actually ask and figure out how to ask this would uh, be great help. When you get on Grinder, you will find that uh... – it isn't a site for guys who are looking for commitments. So you don't have to worry about that. People are not going to assume that if you're on Grinder and making yourself available, uh, that you are available for some sort of committed, long-term, serious, potentially monogamous relationship because that's not what people go to Grinder for. And you know how you can tell that that's not what people go to Grinder for? Because the people who are on Grinder who are looking for a committed relationship, they say that. The people who are looking for committed relationships, they have to put that on there because that is not the default assumption. The default assumption on Grindr is that you're just looking for dick, which is a fine thing to look for. And there are people who looked for dick and found relationships and people who are looking for relationships and just found dick and were happy to have it. So just everything that you're saying about yourself, newly out as by, newly sort of interested in pursuing something with a dude and having your first experiences, not looking for a commitment in a committed relationship, but looking for some entry-level fun, put that on your profile. Put that out there when you have conversations with guys and then use your common sense and your bullshit detectors, reminding yourself that these are people who are trying to get into your pants. And sometimes when people are trying to get into someone's pants, they will misrepresent themselves or tell people what they think that person wants to hear. So just talk with the guys who approach you. Put your stuff on Grindr. If it's Grindr you want to go with, you can also get on OkCupid. You can get on 
Scruff, you can get on Jack. There's a million places where you can go and a lot of guys are on more than one site. And just be honest. If a guy doesn't want to be with you because you're inexperienced or newly out or bi or that you have a partner or that partner's a woman, when they find that out about you, they'll run away. They'll leave you alone. They'll stop talking to you and you don't want to be with a guy who isn't going to be understanding about your particular circumstance or patient with your inexperience. So good riddance to those guys if they run from you when they find out the truth about who you are and what you want and what you're looking for. Hi, Jan. This is Bay Area, California calling. I am 25 years old. I have been in a relationship with a man for three years. I am calling because I could really use some of your advice about the situation I found myself in. In May, I was sexually assaulted. Actually, I was raped. I also contracted genital herpes from the incident. Um, it's been very emotionally trying, also physically trying, getting to know more about my body at this stage in life when I already had fallen into my womanhood and my comfort and my sexuality has been really, really difficult. I guess I just really am calling to ask you to school me with some of your experience and your gusto and help me to not feel quite as damaged by this. I am going through counseling. I have had that guy arrested. He will be spending time in prison. Um, I'm going to see an herbalist. So I am being proactive in my physical health uh, and my mental health as well. I'm seeking counseling. At this point, I am now really just upset that my sex drive is in the toilet. My libido is just totally screwed up. And most of it stems from the feeling that my body is toxic. And I'm trying to fight that. I recognize that herpes is probably one of the least concerning STDs I've gotten. The permanence of it is what is scary. So, yeah, I guess I could use some of your bright spirit and some of your positive thinking. Joining me by phone to help field this uh, question, Janet Yesen. She's a clinical social worker who's a founder of the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, which opened in 1973. She also coordinates acute crime crisis services at the Victims of Violence Program at the Cambridge Health Alliance Department of Psychiatry and affiliate of the Harvard Medical School. Uh, hey, Janet, thank you so much for joining up being on the phone with us this morning. Sure. This is a colossally uh, depressing question. There seem to be uh, two issues here. Uh, of, of course, the, the the rape that this woman experienced and sounds like she's doing everything that uh, we would typically recommend that she do. She's in seeing a counselor. She's processing this. Uh, she's you know getting it out, getting help. Uh, but also, there's the issue of the sexually transmitted infection that that she. I don't want to say she acquired that transmitted was, to her. That's trans- for sure. That, that was inflicted upon her by this yeah, piece of exactly. shit. Who, thank God, has been arrested, and thank God, will be going to jail. And thank and thank her. Well, we don't know that. We don't know whether he's going to be going to jail. So that's right. another aspect of it. That's true. Well, and I shouldn't be thanking God for the fact that at least he's been arrested. If she's thanking her for reporting the crime, and you know, not all women who are sexually assaulted or raped are in a position where they can. But it's always great when women who've been sexually assaulted do because we don't mm-hmm. want these people rattling around on the streets. So with your vast experience in this area, what would your advice for her be around reconnecting with her sexuality and her libido in the face of this? Well, first of all, I want to appreciate the caller for reaching out to you because I think that also takes a lot of courage and strength and 
I think that you're really identifying really how much courage it has taken her to, you know, to come out and talk about this and um, to really get the help that she needs. But I think that one of the things is, is that the healing happens over time and it's really hard to rush the process. And mm-hmm. I know that she's doing everything that she can to get the help and support. But in fact, you know, if you have a broken leg or some other kind of injury, you know, it takes time to heal. And I think that this kind of violation also takes time to heal. And unfortunately, you can't really rush the process. I think that you've identified and she's really articulated the way that her mind, her body, her spirit, her sexuality has been affected and including her relationships. She was on a journey, as she said, to claiming her body and her identity. She's 25. And um, this really was an interruption of that journey. Mm -hmm. To really fully appreciate the level of interruption, I think, is really important. And not just for her, but also for her partner. I do hear often from women who've been sexually assaulted or raped uh, who who are partnered, that they feel this they feel this obligation to rush the healing process so their partner yes. isn't deprived. Exactly. And you have to set that aside. Well, you can set that aside except that she's been in this loving relationship for three years, so the, the impact on their relationship is also affected. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of resources in the community. You know, they live in the Bay Area, so fortunate, they're very fortunate in that way, so that, you know, he can get some help and support and they together can go through this journey, but it is not just up to her to, you know, help him through this. He deserves, I think you rightly name, to get some support and help as well as her friends and family also, who I'm sure are affected by this. So I think that getting help in the community, because she is naming some of these issues that I'm sure other callers can identify with, which is wonderful for you and she to be speaking um, so candidly about this. And I know that there are rape crisis centers in the Bay Area for her to also be able to reach out and get some support and um, not to really rush the process. I really appreciated her saying to you that she wanted to kind of um, have you identify and be able to for her to tag on to and borrow some of your gusto. I thought that was a great term. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if she can't identify that, I can't access that in herself right now, that she can certainly borrow yours whenever she needs it. So I think that was just a, a wonderful way for her to be able to also access help. In your, va- in your experience uh, over the decades, really your vast experience, what do you think is more typical uh, that somebody, you know, they take the time, the time that they need to heal and that's a process and you can't rush it. And their sense of sexuality, their sense of owning their own sexuality, their their feeling of sexual yeah. agency and desire and joy reemerges of its own accord, or is it an act of will? Do do the women who yeah. come through this not force it, not rush it, but it isn't? Yeah. Is it an act? Is it a conscious decision, or is it something yeah. that just reemerges of its own accord? Which do you think is? Which do you think it is, or is it some combo of both, or different for different people? Yeah, well, I think that it's probably a combination of all of the above and also very unique, but I think that's really important to remember that sexual violation is very different than intimacy. It is very intimate. It's an intimate violation, but like if you are hit over the head with a frying pan, you don't call it cooking, and (laughs) you would not. 
Right? So, sorry, I, I hate to laugh in the context of this conversation, but that, I think that's very smart and very true. That's right. The sexual violation is very intimate, and it's a violation of your spirit, of your body, of your sexuality, but it is not intimacy. And so I think making that distinction is really important, and that there is a lot of ways to be intimate and joyful with your partner that does not necessarily involve intercourse, that that kind of sort of gradual touching and reclaiming that for yourself mm-hmm. and with the partner is, um, a, 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 you know, as I said, you know, and you said too, it's a slow process, but there can be lots of different stages and lots of different ways that you can reclaim that and lots of ways that they can explore that together and be curious about that together. Mm-hmm. What ways they be curious about re- regaining their intimacy with clothes on, without clothes on, um, in various kinds of romantic ways, and to reclaim the romance in their relationship that can also be violated in, you know, in the context of sexual assault. So is that helpful? That's very helpful. I've, I've had, you know, I'm a 50-year-old guy. I have lots of, a gay guy. I have lots of, <laughs> I have lots of women, lots of friends who are women. Um, I've had friends who were raped or sexually assaulted before, and something that I've seen with my own eyes in, in the lives of some of my friends yeah. That has helped them is to 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 not just to differentiate the intimacy from the violence, you know, that being hit for the frying pan from cooking, but also the sense that that, that sort of came to them uh, that I witnessed. Um, it wasn't I didn't tell them to do this, and it wasn't my insight. It was their personal journey. That there was this point where they that 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 rage got attached to this sense of reclaiming their sexuality. That they weren't going right. to let this be taken from them forever. That there was this time where they had to set it aside. And, and work through this and process it and, as you say, tiptoe back up to intimacy and there's degrees of intimacy. Um, you don't have to jump into the deep end of the pool again right away. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like not losing your virginity again but you know, becoming sexually active all over again. Right. It is the, pro- the proactivity that you're talking about and that the caller actually mentions her proactivity. So it's the balance of compassion, kindness, comfort, and care in the context of regaining control over your mind, body, sexuality, and spirit that you are really um, pointing to, and that, in fact, the essence of a um, sexual violation or, you know, any kind of violence is the sense of being powerless and helpless over your life and your relationship. And so making a conscious decision to um, notice when when you're feeling that and that be kind to yourself and compassionate, notice it, kind of take care of that, and see in which small ways that you can regain that sense of control and power in and, your life. And I think that sense of control and power, the, the thing I was trying to get at with the rage was there was this point where it became an act of defiance against their rapist to take back their sexuality, yeah. that this was a way yeah. of asserting their their power against you know the rapist that had become this abstraction. The rapist wasn't in the room anymore, thank God. But this sense right. that I was, you know, this, this rapist, this person who violated me this way, was trying to take so much from me. Not just right. what happened in that moment, but wanted to take my sense of peace and security and agency and and joy. And this sense that so many of my friends who'd been raped or sexually assaulted, this place they got to, were like it was a it came from a place of anger this reseizing of control right. of their sexual agency and desire right. and it was this defiance right. and i'm not saying to the caller and hey caller i'm not saying to you that if you're not there yet that you're doing it wrong i think that this will come and i think you know this had, the assault happened in may which was just a few months ago that's and right 
that you're still reeling and feeling and hurting, I think is fine. And just maybe be on the lookout for this rising sense of rage and defiance in the face of what was done to you. Um, it's almost like the cavalry coming, and but it's you. It's, you know, it's your own personal cavalry that comes in the end right. and rescues. Well, it's a deep reflection and a deep um, analysis, sort of, of who you are and your own identity. I was very struck with the caller saying that her body is toxic, and that's quite a... Yeah, we haven't even talked about the, the herpes issue here. Yeah, I know, and that's really something that will be triggering for her, you know, as she goes through her life. You know, she's really, as you said, it, it only happened, a, you know, a few months ago, and she'll go through different stages at different points in her life, and, you know, having this, you know, chronic sexually transmitted disease is going to be a, you know, a reminder that she, that of, of what happened to her, mm-hmm. um, but not let it control her, that she can acknowledge it and realize that it is, you know, an injury that she suffered. But she, as a person, is not defined by that, even though that will be with her for the rest of her life. And it's important, I think, to emphasize whenever we talk about HPV or herpes that for most people, and this is not to minimize the trauma of the way in which it was inflicted upon you, caller, but for most people, there's one outbreak and then there's maybe one or two minor outbreaks in the future, but it becomes a big non-event in the life um, most people right. who have herpes are, aren't, aren't even aware they're infected. They may not have noticed the one outbreak they may have had. And in almost all cases, herpes is nowhere near as big a deal as we tend to make of it. It looms so large and it actually in the lives of most people who have herpes, it's so, it's so minor. And I think it's important to bear that in mind, which doesn't minimize the trauma of how she acquired or acquired how Absolutely. this was done to her. Um, but to try to, to try to separate the, to try to compartmentalize those two issues. And I don't know how I've never been assaulted like this. I can't speak to whether it's, that's an easy thing to do to compartmentalize these two issues, but to put herpes on one side and tr- look at it and say, this is not going to be a big deal in my life. I think that what you're saying is really important that it's not, it's not minimizing how she, you know, got it, but in fact, in part compartmentalization, but it's in part getting the information before you run away with the emotion. And so what you're talking about is the the information, the medical information about herpes and um, separating the medical facts from the feelings that get associated with it by the way that she, you know, um, contracted it. And I think that's, you know, where, you know, there's a lot of conversation in popular culture these days about mindfulness practice. And I think that that's another tool that might be helpful to the caller. There's wonderful resources in the San Francisco area around mindfulness practice, and what that can do is it can really help you be, to be present in the moment and not get carried away either with the past events of what they sexual assault or worrying so much about the future so that she can really be in herself, in her heart, in her mind, in her spirit, and can reconnect with that in a way that is helpful and hopeful for her, which I think that she you know, has illustrated already in her call by her strength of her voice, the strength of her conviction, and the, the, her ability to reach out to you. I think, it's, you know, it's a very, very positive. Well, thank you for being there for us when we reached out to you, Janet. Janet Yesen, clinical social worker and founder of the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. Thanks for jumping on the phone today. We really appreciate it. Okay, take care. Have a good day. Hey, Dan. I am a 28-year-old straight guy based in the Mid-Atlantic. 
I'm calling because my girlfriend of two years, who I love dearly, recently broke up with me, and I wanted your advice on whether there's anything I can do to get her back. Here's what happened. Two years ago, one month before I met her, I got a DUI. I'm really ashamed of this event, and I regret it deeply. However, the, the incident took place in a different state than the one I reside, so this made understanding its impact and consequences on the status of my driver's license really confusing. Six months later, I learned that my license in my home state had been suspended and later revoked entirely. In spite of these facts, I kept driving, and I never told my girlfriend about the DUI and subsequent loss of my driving privileges out of shame, guilt, embarrassment, and uncertainty of how she would respond. In other words, I was afraid there was a strong possibility that she would break up with me. Three weeks ago, I was pulled over for a minor traffic violation and subsequently arrested when the cop ran my license and found out it wasn't valid. My girlfriend was understandably really, really upset when I finally came clean about everything, and she broke up with me for keeping such an enormous secret from her and doing something illegal for like a year and a half. Also, she explicitly stated that she can never trust me again, end quote. I understand that what I did was wrong and that she's really upset, but I wanted to know if in your mind there's anything I can do to try to obtain her forgiveness and to take me back and trust me again. Beforehand, we had a wonderful relationship, and it's been the best relationship I've ever been in. Likewise, there haven't been any other previous trust issues during our time together. I thought that was important to mention to you. So I really, really, really screwed up, uh, but I'm looking for any sort of feedback or advice that you would have in this situation, or if I should just resign myself to cutting my losses and uh, moving on, learning from this experience, and to be more transparent in future relationships. I get this question a lot, not this particular set of circumstances, but I was dumped for this reason that even I have to admit is pretty valid, but I want this person back. How can I get them back? What are the magic words? Here's the screwed pooch, Dan, unscrew the pooch for me. And I I can't do that for you. I can't make her take you back. I can only do what you've probably already done. I can only recommend that you do what you've probably already done. Tell her that you would like to stay together. Tell her that you're very sorry. Tell her that you won't ever do it again. Tell her you've learned your lesson, you know, explain your shitty, faulty baloney reasoning and in, in keeping this from her and in doing this dangerous thing. And then it's on her. It's up to her. It's up to that person who left you for that legitimate or illegitimate reason to decide whether they're going to take you back or not. And there's nothing you can do to compel them to decide to take you back. So you just let them know that you're still interested and you're very sorry and you would love to be taken back. And if they don't take you back, then you learn from your mistakes and go on and date somebody else and try not to make the same mistakes again. Make brand new ones. We're going to take a break from the calls for just a quick second. Dan Pashman is the host of the Sporkful Food Podcast at WNYC Public Radio New York and the author of the new book, Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite more delicious. Thanks for dropping by on your big book tour. Thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, what do all the kinky sex perverts who listen to my show need to know about eating more better? Can it improve their sex lives? What are they going to find in your book? I haven't had a chance to look at it. <laughs> well, I think the first thing that uh, is addressed in the book is a lot about eating on dates and how that's going to affect uh, the dating experience. Um, and yeah, look, I think that people do need to think about what you're eating on a date if they're planning on having or hoping to have sex later on that night. Um, I don't think Indian food's a great thing to be eating on a first date. Do people go on dates? Do people have dinners on first dates anymore? People hook up these days. Well, the then, put it this way. Don't eat Indian food before you go out to the club or just go on that <laughs> booty call, okay? Whatever you're going out to do or whatever you're going out to fuck, 
don't eat Indian food. Or I, don't, I don't want to pitch this on Indian food, like Ethiopian food with that injera, the bread that like that stuff has like been like designed and allowed to expand in your stomach. And like you will eat it, you'll think you're full, and then you're gonna get into bed in two hours, oh. and you're gonna be like, I and need the to gas is gonna get pounded out of you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's not. It's not. A so good you got to eat like a wasp if you're hoping to get laid that night. Right. You eat, eat like some a mayonnaise wasp. on white bread with yeah. some tuna. <laughs> not tuna because that'll make your breath stink. Maybe some chicken. That's right. Breath is a very important issue. You need to think about that and understand that your breath, um, like gum, toothpaste, those kinds of things, clean out your mouth are not going to give you long term good breath because your breath comes out of your stomach. And if you want to have good breath, you should be kissing somebody. You got to think about what's in your stomach. True, and what might, what else you might like to have in your stomach, perhaps <laughs> later if yeah, everything goes well. Exactly. I want to talk about food perverts. I've always thought that foodies, and you know, you go to a foodie's house, and there's a million implements everywhere. It's a big kitchen full of, of stuff and toys. Yeah. I always, when I see a foodie, and I, you know, I go to Williams and Sonoma, and you look at all the implements hanging on the wall everywhere. You know what it looks like to me? What? It looks like a kinky sex store. It looks like. A place where people go to buy all the implements for their dungeons, which are often displayed in the same way, just hanging on pegs all around the room <laughs> if someone has like a tricked out sort of place-based dungeon. Right. And yet people look at people who spend a lot of money buying sex toys and, and having a lot of them as somehow you know doing something wrong, that they're, they're doing sex wrong. This is a waste of money and a bit, you know, a bit bizarre and crazy. But nobody walks into a foodie's kitchen and think, wow, you don't need to really need 14 kinds of whisks any more than that guy needed 14 kinds of tit clamps, really. One will do the job. Right. How come foodie perverts get away with sort of endlessly elaborate, uh, endlessly more elaborate uh, kitchens and people who take the same approach to satisfying their sexual appetites don't get away with it? Well, I, I, I think that I, I would actually – Counter that I, I think that the the food world probably breaks down into similar camps as the BDSM world, which is you have some people who are like who would go into that tricked out dungeon and say, "Oh shit, you have all fourteen nipple clamps? That's awesome!" You mm-hmm. know, I always wanted the X fourteen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I've been saving up for it. Um, and then you're gonna have other people gonna walk in and be like, "These guys are so over the top, you know? Like you don't need, you know, all that." And so I, there are foodies who walk into people's kitchens and think you have too many mixers. I, I, I mean, maybe those people don't aren't the ones who call themselves foodies. I mean, I say that my book and my podcast are not for foodies; they're for eaters. Mm-hmm. So, like, I am really so a fucker really only needs a bed. That's right. But somebody who's a sexy, as sort of analogous to a foodie, they need a tricked out playroom. That's right. So like, to translate my work into your language, it would be like it's, <laughs> it's, it's not for dungeon masters; it's for fuckers. Okay, and so what are fuckers going to le- learn when they read your food fuckers <laughs> right. going to learn when they read your book? I mean, I think they're going to learn how to make everything they eat more delicious, you know, and it's not about Where's the line between working to make everything you eat more delicious and tipping over into foodie? Well, I think it's about focusing on what tastes good to you. Um, you know, you talk often on your show about people about the need to be sex positive. Mm-hmm. I want people to be deliciousness positive and not to get hung up on what other people are going to think of you or the way that you eat, mm-hmm. uh, and not to get hung up on what society tells you is the right way to eat, okay? You don't have to, um, uh, like, what's a breakfast food versus what's a dinner food? You know, people would say, like, it's weird to eat cake for breakfast, but then they'll go and eat a muffin or a Danish. I had cake for breakfast today. And, and that's why you're... But I'm a foodie pervert, and a pervert pervert. That's right. And a sex foodie. Okay. So that, I mean, this book is for you, Dan. Oh, there's something I want, I want to get <laughs> you, I want, one thing I want to nail you down on. Yeah, please. Food and sex, mixing the two. I've mm. always taken a firm line against it. Dessert is dessert. Don't put whipped cream on somebody's nipples because it melts and they smell like a baby threw up on them in about a minute. <laughs> you don't have to incorporate chocolate into blowjobs. Dick is an acquired taste. 
acquire it. Nobody likes Guinness the first time they swallow it either, <laughs> right? So you just acquire these tastes. But, you know, flavored condoms, uh, flavored body powders and paints, uh, the, the sort of holding up mixing food and sex as kind of this sensuous safe kink for mildly sexually adventurous couples with Asperger's. <laughs> Where do you fall on it? I'm I'm a firmly in the con camp. Fuck and then eat. Don't fucking eat. I, I'm with you 100. percent I think that uh, yeah the 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 body sur- all body surfaces are just like not ideal food conduits. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to be eating off of those things, and, and it's like. Um, you don't want to be eating food off of those things. Right. You want to be eating those things. Sure. We're there's, not really eating. Other good things just, to eat. That's right. Right. There's something else to put in your mouth, something that comes back out. That's right. Exactly. And, and uh, anyway, so, and everything that people want to incorporate into sex is sweet. As if we're not getting enough sugar in our fucking diets, that is. As if we don't live in a world of donuts and cakes. Right. And well, and this is something sprinkles. that I rail against in the book, which is that, like, you know, adding one decadent thing on top of another decadent thing doesn't necessarily equal twice the decadence. Sometimes it just gets gross. Sometimes you smell like a baby puke. That's right. You know, like like mac and cheese. I love mac and cheese. It's a very decadent food. It's very sensual food, you know. But you don't have to put bacon in your mac and cheese. It's kind of a waste of bacon. And you don't have to put mac and cheese in the vagina of the person you're about to go down on. That's right. Or bacon. And you definitely don't have to put mac and cheese and bacon in the vagina of the person you're about to go down on because that is overkill. It is. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I was afraid that you as a foodie and how to make every bite more delicious that, you know, if you're going to chew on somebody's junk, you might want to chocolate sauce that. Drives me crazy. Strawberry flavored condoms. Come to me with the Brad Pitt flavored condoms. But have you experimented with this thing? I've heard of that people give a blowjob with like Altoids in their mouth and it's supposed to have a special sensation. That's not happened to me. But have you have any I think high school students do that once or twice. And then the guy with the penis realizes that that is not actually a pleasurable (laughs) sensation. Yeah, dick, just add menthol. Nobody (laughs) thinks that a second time. This will be so much more exciting with pop rocks getting into my piss slit. No, one pop rock in your piss slit and you were done with that kind of experimentation. You and your wife. Yes. When you met, did you have a first date, dinner, sit down, watch each other chew? Well, we it, it was funny. We both we met for drinks in quotes, and we both told we both had built in a fake excuse for where we might have to go. Like we met at like five p.m. for drinks on a Saturday. We both were like, "Oh, I might have this person. I might be meeting up with a friend later." Both because we figured if this doesn't go well, we want to get we out of here. Out. And then we ended up being like spending six hours together. So we did end up eating. Um, we sort of like went on a bar crawl, basically. We were sitting outside the backyard of this bar in Brooklyn drinking, and um, I remember that um, there was a slug crawling on the. We were eating pretzels. They had free pretzels there, and there was a slug crawling on the ground right near us. And I, uh, I knew that she. I could. Her, I knew her brother went to MIT, so I kind of gauged she was probably a little bit of a nerd. I'm really having a hard time keeping up with this story. So, <laughs> date pretzels, drink slug brother. Okay, so bottom line, there's a slug on the ground, and I said, um, "Let's put this." pretzel down next to the slug and see if the slug will try to eat the pretzel, which is covered in salt, which will kill the slug. And she said, I want a guy who tortures animals on first date. <laughs> and mean, I won her heart. Yeah, yeah. We've been capturing stray cats ever since yeah. and drowning them in the bathtub. We, we, <laughs> I, I pitched it more as a science experiment. <laughs> <laughs> it was more like, will the slug know enough not to try to eat the pretzel because the salt will kill it or will it um, go ahead and try to eat the free food and kill itself in the process. And I put the, the pretzel down and the slug crawled towards it and it tried to eat the pretzel and died. True love. And we knew we were in love so after that. So when you guys get married, did you have 
slugs and salt that on every table <laughs> for all your guests to salt the slugs and memorial. We did not. That would have been a good idea. You should go back to that bar and put a little like bronze plaque in the ground right where that <laughs> slug died so that your love could live. That's true. All right. I got to go back there. Brooklyn you should Social. do romantic. You should do a book of non-romantic first dates. That's the least romantic first date story I've ever heard. <laughs> and I've heard like people throwing up on each other and people having uncontrollable diarrhea in the middle of anal sex on a first date. But yours wins. I appreciate that. I'm very honored. I can't wait to tell her. Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast at WNYC. Where can they find that? Uh, sporkful.com or the podcast is on iTunes. He's also the author of the brand new book, Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite more delicious, and he is uh, not a foodie. He's a uh, what did you eater. He is an eater that you can't trust around your pet slugs. Thanks so much <laughs> for dropping by. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay man. I am happily partnered with a fabulous person who he's just unbelievably um, supportive and humble and sexy and charismatic and supportive. I guess my question is, is or my issue is, I am a very jealous partner. Um, I love this man, but I'm also, I don't want to know about his exes. In fact, I get a little annoyed by it. I don't want to know about his past love life or who he slept with. I totally get that exists because I also have this a very similar past, right? So my question is, is I'm very jealous, right? I get very envious quite easily because he's mine and I want to hold on to him. But the issue is, is that I have this kink that he doesn't know about. And the kink is, I think it's really hot to think about he's getting fucked by another guy and having sex with another guy. And maybe it could go even farther where this kink could be. We have a three-way together, and I think it would be really sexy to see him be with someone else or that other guy being with him while I'm in the space and kind of controlling it. And maybe that's the issue is I'm a control freak. I need to... uh, be in control and own the situation in order to enjoy it where his exes I don't. This is a dangerous combo. The cuckold kink, you want to be cuckolded right in front of your face, and the slightly irrational jealousy thing. That combo is potentially explosive because you don't know how you will react in the moment to seeing your partner fucked by another guy. And if he consents to being fucked by another guy because you think this will turn you on – And then he does it for you and you explode in a jealous rage at him, which is a scenario that I have heard about from other people who had your combo of issues, controlling jealousy, but also cuckoldy kink, desire to see partner fucked by somebody else. He's going to feel so violated. He's going to feel so let on. He's going to feel so hurt by by your reaction to him doing for you what you want him to do that it really could end this otherwise lovely, lovely relationship. So before you indulge your or reveal even your cuckolding kink to him, and it doesn't sound too cuckoldy actually. Cuckolding usually involves some degree of humiliation where the partner who's cheating is more in control and rubbing the other's nose in it. This sounds a little hot wifey. I know you guys are guys and it's not a hot wife situation where the spouse, usually the male uh, husband is taking pleasure in his hot wife uh, being with or servicing or being desired by or, or fucked by another guy. And there's no element of domination, no element of humiliation. In fact, the husband is in control of the hot wife to a certain extent, uh, getting it on with somebody else. It, it happens with his consent. So you're into hot boyfriending, not necessarily cuckolding. 
you have to get to the bottom of this jealousy thing. You have to get a grip on this jealousy thing before you think about exploring in three ways. This you know, you think about throwing matches at the puddle of gasoline on the floor in your brain by having this three way and seeing him fucked by somebody else. You can't even hear him talk about an ex boyfriend. You don't even like to contemplate the fact that he's had sex before you. He had lovers before you, and yet you want to lay eyes on him getting plowed by another guy. That is potentially explosive. Of course, many people eroticize their fears. You are clearly one of those people, the jealous type who wants to be cheated on, right? A lot of the cuckolding shit that goes on out there is guys who worried about their female partners cheating on them and it became a kink. It became something they desired. They wanted to realize their darkest sexual fears, but in a scenario where they were in control, usually it is the cuckold who puts the partner up to cuckolding them and in many instances, cuckolds are actually the ones in control. Just like in BDSM, the bottom is in charge. The cuckold is you know, the low man on the totem pole in a cuckolding situation. But usually it's all driven by their consent. It's their fantasy that's being enacted in front of them. That can tip over into something ugly though when the cuckold is very, very controlling and very rigid because then what happens is – the partner, the the wife, the husband, the whoever who is cuckolding the cuckold does the slightest thing wrong, puts the puts a foot wrong, expresses desire for the other partner for the third in a way that triggers the cuckold that isn't what the cuckold imagined, and the cuckold who set this all up, who this is all being done for ostensibly, explodes in a rage because the reality of the partner getting fucked in front of them isn't the fantasy, isn't what they imagined. Maybe the they never really thought about their partner really getting into being fucked and really connecting sexually with the person who was fucking them. And seeing that, those optics, seeing their partner lose themselves in the moment with somebody else isn't what they signed up for. And they explode in a rage. And I get letters from these people who cuckolded their spouses who are now furious at them for cuckolding them wrong, for liking the sex too much that they were having with someone else at their partner's request. You got to think about all of these things, all of these potential negative outcomes before you ask your boyfriend to do this. But I think a good place to begin would be, I've always been really jealous and people are a mass of contradictions because my jealousy seems to be wrapped up with this, a weird desire to live out my fear and see you with somebody else sometime in a three-way context where I'm kind of calling the shots and see what he says. He might say that would be hot. He might say no fucking way. Am I tiptoeing through that minefield? Or he might say, and this is what I would say if I were your boyfriend, huh, that's interesting. I would be totally into doing that after you talk to a therapist three or four times about the jealousy shit that you really should be getting to the bottom of whether or not you have a cuckolding fetish. Hey, Dan, 24-year-old uh, male. I had a question for you. I've been dating my current girlfriend for about a year and a half now. And since we started dating, she had always been very adamant on the fact if she ever got pregnant, uh, she would definitely get an abortion. Well, uh, she is indeed pregnant by choice. And now she thinks she would keep it. Uh, I think this is a bad idea because we are both still in school. I've got a part-time job. She doesn't have one. And I've brought up things like if we have a kid, like how are we going to afford to feed and clothe it? Where will we live? Like we're both living in separate towns, school. 
so, and I've brought up things like, I think it's irresponsible to have a kid now. We always can in the future. And I plan on staying with this girl. I love her. Um, I just don't know what else to say to her. Like I said, she used to always be like, I'll definitely have an abortion now. She wants to keep it. So I was wondering if there's anything else I could bring up to her. I just think it's irresponsible to have a kid when we have no means of supporting the kid and anything like that. So yeah, any comments would be appreciated. It's not up to you. She gets to make this decision. If you love her and you do want to stay with her and she decides to have this baby against your will, against your better judgment, after weighing what you had to say, after listening to your input and rejecting it, then you guys are tied to each other for the next 18 years at least and you'll have to make the best of it. If it's abortion that she has a problem with, you can ask her to at least contemplate adoption. If it's the losing the child uh, forever after doing an adoption, you should tell her about open adoption, which is a different kind of adoption. It's not what comes to mind when people think of adoption. It's where the birth mother and the birth father, if he's involved, choose the family that their child is placed with and have contact in an ongoing relationship with that family and with their kid all the kid's life. It's kind of adoption Terry and I did when we adopted. A lot of people, when they're weighing adoption, abortion, don't know about open adoption and the scariness of closed adoption, losing each other forever sometimes leads people to keep a kid that they can't take care of or to abort a kid they would rather not have aborted. So think about open adoption. Go to openadopt.org and learn a little bit about it before you talk to her about it. But after walking through all of the options, keeping it, aborting it, doing an adoption, it's ultimately her decision. I would hope that she would take into account the promise she made you when you were sexually active to abort if birth control failed and also your reluctance to parent at this point in your life. Those are things that if she's a reasonable person, she will take into consideration as she makes her decision. But in the end, this is her decision and you have to respect that. It can sometimes drive guys crazy when something like this happens because this is one of those few areas where women have complete control, complete authority and complete autonomy in their decision-making. And that can make some guys a little unhinged and crazy because that's not the way the world is supposed to work. You don't sound like you're one of those guys. Please don't be one of those guys. Say your piece, back the fuck off, let her make this decision because it is her decision to make. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm calling about uh, episode 419, the artist who drinks one to three of his works of art every night. Um, I just wanted to offer a second opinion on that matter. Uh, I agree with your advice. He should end the relationship, uh, but not necessarily because she's a controlling bitch, though that may also be the case. But to spare this woman of the terrible curse of the functional alcoholic. When someone struggles, as this caller did, to admit they have between one and three drinks a day every day, it sets off alarm bells because I've heard it all before. I don't drink and drive. I don't drink during the day on weekdays. I don't beat my wife, etc., etc. These are the typical excuses that a functional alcoholic will make to lie to themselves and to others to maintain the sham that they don't have a problem. This is the hardest type of alcoholism to confront because it rarely, if ever, comes to a head where the person is forced to admit they have a problem. He might be being completely honest, one drink a day during the week, a few more on Friday. But from my experience with alcoholics, one to three every day means at least three every day and more if the opportunity presents itself. All I'm saying is you only got one side of this story, and if he is an alcoholic, which he may not be, then you got lies, half-truths, and numbers rounded way down. 
I just want to put it out there to all the people who may be living and struggling with functional alcoholics that you're not necessarily the nagging, controlling bitch. There are resources out there for people in these situations. Speak up, educate yourself, and don't be bullied. Just because the bills are paid and no one got hurt does not mean a person is not an alcoholic. I've seen too many women that I care deeply about drawn over the coals by the lies and half-truths of my father's ongoing functional alcoholism. Hi, this is in response to episode 419, the guy who's turned off by imperfect feet. Buddy, I feel you. I have a crazy foot fetish and I'm thinking about feet pretty much all the time. If you're looking for a boyfriend, though, you shouldn't be looking for a guy with perfect feet. You should be looking for a guy who's GGG, because if he cares about you and your pleasure, foot care is a really easy thing to do. If he has calluses, you could give him foot rubs with moisturizing lotion. If his nails aren't perfect, pay for him to get a pedicure once in a while. This prospect of yours could be a really GGG guy who just has no reason to take better care of his feet, and you could be that reason. And even if you don't think you want to suck on toes now, if and when you realize you do, you're going to want to be with a guy who's down for that. So keep an open mind, and you just might be pleasantly surprised. Hi, Dan. I am only calling to respond to a caller from last week about dogs. That dog licking is a sign of dominance. It drives me crazy when I, lo- when I see other people let their dogs lick them. And if you have the opportunity to notice, they're usually up on the couch with their owner, another sign of dominance. When you have big dogs, they are not to be allowed on the same level as you. If you lay on a couch, it should be on the floor. If you go down to its level, it sees you as an equal. So that whole, oh, I'm going to get on the floor and play with them, you're not. You're instigating play, which can be misread as we are equals and we are playing. You have to be careful with big dogs. And she didn't say what specifically what breed it was, but um, licking is a sign of ownership. It's not love. So it's a sign, it, it, when you do allow someone to lick you, you're submitting. You cannot submit to big dogs. And the fact that the, the boyfriend allows and uh, permits himself to be seen as less than, that woman is never going to be uh, an alpha in that group because the dog is the alpha. I respect training. You respect the animal. You don't dominate it. You don't beat it. But you expect respect and you demand respect. And in return, the dog is respected. And it it knows its place. And that's all it's looking for is to understand its place in the pack. Her boyfriend is allowing it to be the alpha. Good luck. And the husband or the boyfriend needs to have a complete refocus. Watch some Caesar Milan, for God's sake. What's going on? And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. To record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. But quickly, before we go, I want to remind everybody that we're having a live taping of the Savage Lovecast on December 5th at Seattle's Neptune Theater. It is the first ever Savage Lovecast Christmas Spectacular. I'll be there. Rachel Lark will be there with new songs, Christmas songs. Adult Baby Jesus is going to be there. It's going to be a blast. Go to thestranger.com slash Lovecast Christmas to get tickets now with a live taping December 5th in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Leah Torres on Twitter at Leah N. Torres. Follow Dan Pashman on Twitter at The Sporkful. 
The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back after next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. And join us December 5th at the Neptune Theater in Seattle for a live take